It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got some security news. He'll talk about uh, the EFF, EFFs, what do they call it, honey badger? <laughs> and he's got a, a response to the uh, a white paper we uh, talk, we've been talking about all week from jo- Jonathan Zajarski about uh, iOS security. A little bit in depth on iOS security coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 465, recorded July 22nd, 2014. iOS surveillance? Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device for 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online, your privacy too, with this guy here, Steve Gibson, the uh, the guy at GRC.com, our security expert. Author of Spinrite, discoverer of spyware, coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program, and uh, has been doing this show. I think really now we can say that your credentials as a security guru come from eight years of covering the space on Security Now. I think that's probably yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is now the platform. Hey, Steve. Yeah, well, and I mean, I'm the, the podcast has had me in this long enough that things are beginning to occur to me like you know the perfect passwords and the and off the grid for a paper-based encryption system which you know is really solid uh you know cryptographically strong and then of course squirrel which uh is coming along and may actually get some market or or some some website share it's really not market share because it's free but you know i mean it's an alternative using uh, state-of-the-art public and private key crypto for uh, obsoleting usernames and passwords. So, yeah, I, I think I've probably earned my stripes. Earned your stripes for sure. And there's an advantage to having done it for a while. You start to see things come around again. <laughs> and, uh, well... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, this week, we've got uh, not too much news. Uh, I was planning to talk about the um, web-based password managers, but as happens uh, in this instance, that got just pushed off to the side by a a very attention-grabbing presentation is probably the best way to put it uh, at the um, at the HopeX conference over the weekend. Hackers um, on planet Earth. I, and I agree with you. I love the acronym. I just yeah. love that Hackers on Planet Earth had the acronym has the acronym of Hope. Hope. That's that's <laughs> neat. Yeah. Um, and so our main topic, uh, the way I the, the the title, as you can see on the screen, is iOS surveillance, 
going up at the end to ask a ask the question. Um, and but we we do have some news to talk about. Uh, uh, we have new versions of Chrome and Firefox. Uh, their uh, level three had a blog posting responding to Verizon's that we talked about last week. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Microsoft Research got some news by apparently telling people not to always use strong passwords. And, of course, the press picked that up and said, huh, what? Uh, also just happening is uh, some news about something called canvas fingerprinting that we talked about two years ago when the paper came out. Now it's everyone's suddenly worried about it. So we'll we'll basically debunk that again. Uh, we have some miscellaneous notes and updates, and uh, then we'll plow into uh, Zdarsky. Is that how you pronounce his name? Zdarsky. I've been mangling it since uh, the story yeah. came out. We'll I'm just not call sure. him Jonathan. We know his name is Jonathan, or, or by so. his hacker handle, which apparently, yes. <laughs> according to Ars Technica, is Nerve Gas. No, it's absolutely true. There was a a, a bio intro that I saw where he, uh, he was declaring himself as using the hacker name, the, ha- the hacker handled Nerve Gas. Wow! So, and <laughs> and he is a he's a well known jailbreaker, iPhone jailbreaker. And there was a little aside that I noted in his paper that said, and there are no iOS seven jailbreaks so far really so bravo apple i mean this is what apple's been working for and you know trying not to make any mistakes because that's what they would be at this point with the architecture they have it in theory it should be jailbreak proof and no one has i mean that's what he was probably doing where he got all of this intelligence to put, put put together a presentation was okay well i can't can't demonstrate jailbreaking so i'm gonna Talk about things I found that don't make sense. And so we'll talk about that this wow, week. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. Um, as always, lots of things to and, talk about. And the other thing I liked about this is even for people who like aren't on the iOS platform in any way, shape, or form and don't care, there's this is also all kinds of sort of like teachable moment here because – the, the fundamental principles, uh, and you guys mentioned it on on Mac Break Weekly, the tension, which is one of our ongoing themes on this podcast, between convenience and ease of use yeah. and security. Um, arguably, and this is what I will argue when, when we, we look at Jonathan's points, it's, you know, I, I'm sure, and, and he does raise points that are good, Apple does need now that he's said this to respond, um, but it can also be explained at largely, I think not completely. And, we, and see, I guess my feeling is neither of them will are going to disagree with anything I have to say. They'll they'll both both sides will say, yep, that's, you know, probably the case. All right. We shall get to that and uh, the news of the week in just a moment. But first, uh, a little bit about uh one of our great sponsors, and I know those of you who listen to this show are very interested in the idea of, uh, uh, you know, uh, IT and learning what you need to know either to become an IT expert yourself or to get the certs that will help you get an IT job. And there's lots of ways to do that. There's the online courses. There's schools, trade schools. There's uh, materials. If you're a kind of do-it-yourself kind of guy, you can buy at the bookstore. I don't think there's a better way to do it than IT Pro. TV. Tim and Don have really put together something pretty darned exciting here. They have over 10 years of experience in uh, teaching this. 
But they saw what we were doing both at first at uh, uh, 10 years ago on uh, Tech TV and then more recently here on Twitter. And they said, you know, it would be really great if you could learn the stuff you need to get the certs uh, in the same way that you would maybe watch in Twit, uh, live on air with a chat room, watching courses at your leisure, uh, downloadable courses. Um, they use the same uh, technologies we do, the TriCaster. A lot of the stuff they do really looks like the screensavers or uh, or a tech TV. Well, well there he is. There's uh, Don right there. Um, IT Pro TV. If you're interested in polishing your skills, they have an episode library now with courses on Apple, Microsoft, Cisco, A+, CCNA, Security+, MCSA, CISSP. They now have Linux Plus and Apple certifications. That's something they've started adding this month. It's pretty exciting. You can interact with the hosts uh, live on the show. Uh, and web-based Q&As are available as well. Very similar to what we do here at Twit. They also have a new web interface and a learning management system. So you can track your progress as you go through the course library. They, you know, a lot of times, uh, one of the reasons people end up going to schools because they want access to machines so they can actually try this stuff out as they learn it. They've solved that problem with their virtual machine sandbox lab environment. When you get a subscription to IT Pro TV, you can you log in and you've got hands-on practice and learning with HTML on any browser with HTML5. That's pretty much any OS. And you can and you can really start setting up a Windows network, for instance, and configuring clients, the whole thing. The measure up practice exams are also included with your subscription. That's worth 79 bucks right there. So you can take practice exams before you actually go take the tests. If you're an annual subscriber, and it's really uh, worthwhile to do that, it's much less, exp well, not much less, you get two months free when you do that. Uh, you'll also get uh, the ability to download episodes for offline consumption. They've got corporate accounts. You can see all the certs they offer. And uh, it's very easy to go, you know, if you start to dig into the course, here's their MCSA course for Windows 8.1. As you dig into the course, you'll see immediately that, you know, it's broken down into the actual test questions and chapters and so forth. So you can learn what you need to learn. Now, normally... It, this all costs, actually, a, I think a very affordable $57 a month, $570 when you buy a year. That's an awfully good price, but because they're fans of Twit and and Steve, and they know that uh, Security Now listeners are very smart, very interested in this, they've got a 30% discount for you when you use the offer code SN30 to sign up at itpro.tv slash security now. SN30, that gives you 30% off. Not for the first month, not for the first year, but for the life of your subscription. And that's one of the best things about IT Pro TV. Keep learning. Lots of free content if you want to just see the, how, how it works. Um, we are, we're just really pleased to be uh, teamed up with uh, Tim and Don and the folks at itpro.tv slash security. Now use SN30 and get 30% off. All right, Steve Gibson. Let's, uh, I guess, kick things <laughs> off with the security news. Yeah, so um, I was somewhere, I think waiting for some friends at a restaurant or something, where I saw someone tweet the news, and so I, I was unable to thank them, but they have my thanks for noting that in a recent Chrome update, the check for certificate revocation option did, in fact, disappear, as we were expecting it to do. Um, it took some time to move through whatever vetting channel and chain they have, 
But sure enough, I fired my Chrome up this morning. I went to advanced settings, scroll down to the HTTPS slash SSL big button under which there used to be an option for turning on or off checking for certificate revocation. And it is no more. So um, this is them continuing to say, oh, this is confusing for people and uh, it doesn't really work anyway, so we're going to remove it. And it, it, really, it's, it's the case, as we, as we know from our previous coverage of revocation checking. Chrome on Windows and Mac was already getting the benefit of those platforms' robust certificate revocation checking, and they preempted the browsers running on them. So it didn't matter whether that was set or not, you were protected. So you really didn't need it there. And on Android and iOS, those platforms don't provide the information about revocation up in through the API to the browsers running on the platform. So no revocation checking is being done. And again, the checkbox would have no purpose. You could turn it on, but it wouldn't help you um, on those platforms. And turning it off wouldn't turn off revocation on Windows and Mac. So I, I can see the logic of them removing it. I think, you know, the reason everything is different for Firefox is that Mozilla brings its own certificate stack with it. And I'm suspecting that one of the reasons that Google forked the OpenSSL project to create the so-called boring SSL, as, as we were as we covered a few weeks ago, is that you know they're thinking, okay, we need to solve this problem, so we need our own, and and so it, it, I wouldn't be at all surprised if at some point we do see actual revocation checking in Chrome because they've learned that the in the case of iOS and Android, there's not none going on. So they need to provide that themselves if the platforms underneath it don't. And as I understand it, Android is a long way away from having it. iOS has it for EV certs, but I don't understand why it's not being protected, you know, not protecting all of them. Uh, arguably, uh, I think it should be. But uh, so that did, we were expecting that to happen in Chrome, and it has. Firefox moved from 30 to 31 in its major version, and uh, there's really nothing to to write home about. I looked through all the changes. It's just sort of a moving forward on all the standards fronts, implementing additional less used um, verbs and, and semantics for some of the web standards. JavaScript gets a few more things. The math packets get a few more. They've, they've defined constants for greatest integer and smallest integer, those sorts of things. So just sort of, you know, a nice thing. Um, when I went to help in Firefox, it was already open. It, it always uses that now as sort of the trigger because I don't start and stop Firefox. My Firefox is like my my desktop. It's just my, it's you know, it's my interface to the world. So it just sits here on. And it's when I go in to help that, that it kind of wakes up the updater and goes, oh, yeah, we got something here. And then it downloads 16 and a half megabytes. And, and then I restart Firefox and I'm up and going. So 
So anyone who is a Firefox user, if you uh, next time you start it, I imagine it'll update. Or if it's already running, just go to help and uh, about. Um, I always try to, as I've said before, uh, or just recently, I'm trying to put some sort of an interesting diagram, sort of like a diagram of the week for, in the show notes for Security Now, since I am uh, publishing them and tweeting their IR, the uh, URL, which is only varies week by week by the number, so anyone can guess what it is uh, just looking at one of them. Um, in this case, the diagram is from sort of the rebuttal response to Verizon's uh, commentary uh, about what's going on with them and Netflix. Last, so last week's diagram was the one we talked about, which I liked mostly because it just sort of showed us, kind of gave us an in, inside view into the Verizon network and demonstrated that sure enough, you know, they were saying what everyone agrees, and that is that their in internally their network has no problem. Yep, you found it. Um, but it is the it is the peering to the the carriers that are delivering Netflix content that that where the congestion exists. And it's the use of color psychology. They've got green everywhere except one arrow, which is the Netflix transit providers to Verizon. They're maxed out. It's their fault. And if you just looked at the graph, you'd assume, hey, well, it must be the red arrow that's the problem because everything else is green. Well, and, you know, and, and this we, we've understood that. It's the peering. It's the, I mean, and that's what I liked about the diagram. And it, and in fact, we get another level of refinement of that in level three's response. I mean, I the, understand the level that level three has another, as you know, they're promoting their position. But, well, yeah. And, and also, you know, the level three guy was a little peevish. Um, you know, he, for example, nowhere does Verizon name any of these transit providers, yet level three believes that they're being blamed. I mean, it says, well, they're so one why of does them. Verizon, they're one of them, right? I mean, but they're not named. And so, so why does Verizon show this red bar? And why do they blame level three and the other network operators contracted by Netflix? Uh, you know, so. So, yeah, uh, what I liked about it was some of the what was the level of detail that we got in. Yes, in that in that diagram. Um, uh, and so this is reading Mark Taylor, who's the VP of content and media for level three. He said, as I explained in my last blog post, the bit that is congested is the place where the level three and Verizon now. And this is level three speaking. So they're only speaking of their interconnect. Um so the level three and Verizon networks interconnect. Level three's network interconnects with Verizon's in 10 cities. So again, we need to sort of remember that, you know, the internet is an, is an, is an interconnected network of private networks. And it's these peering, as, as is the term, where the networks peer with each other. That's where the, these major networks Inter, you know, like cross their traffic from one to the other. So he so so Mark says, level three's network interconnects with Verizon's in ten cities, three in Europe, and seven cities in the United States. The aggregate utilization of those interconnections 
the, so the peering points in Europe, and he just takes a, a, a date out of the, I mean, like a recent date on July 8th, was 18%. And he notes a region where Verizon does not sell broadband to its customers. The utilization of those interconnections in the United States where Verizon sells broadband to its customers and sees level three and online video providers such as Netflix as now this is interesting as competitors to its own CDN, its content delivery network and pay TV businesses. So, you know, that's what <laughs> that, I, I can't comment on that, but that's what Mark is alleging. And but he says was about 100 percent. No one disputes that. And to be more specific, as Mr. Young, the the Verizon guy pointed out, that was 100% utilization in the direction of flow from the level three network, which is to say from the Netflix side to the Verizon network. And then Mark continues. So let's look at what this means in one of those locations. The one Verizon picked in its diagram, Los Angeles. All of the Verizon Fios customers in Southern California likely get, and I wish I was one of them, but I can't get Fios, uh, gets only because, <laughs> only wish it because my alternative is Cox, which is, you know, worse, likely get some of their content through this interconnect location. It is in a single building and boils down to a router level three owns a router Verizon owns, and four 10 gigabit Ethernet ports on each router. A small cable runs between each of those ports to connect them together. Cat 6A cable. (laughs) Actually, at at 10 gig, it's probably fiber. No, we uh, we get uh, 10 gigabits on our uh, our Cat 6 cable. Yeah, so 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 picture, you know, that th- this is a this is a building where both level 3 like ha- level 3 has a data center and Verizon and I can't remember the name of the building, but it's a famous building in LA um that I used to talk to my Vario guys about cuz like every, oh, it has no like, windows. That's how you'll spot it. And it's like one Wilshire. Oh, I think that's it. I think it's one Wilshire. Yeah. Um it, it and it's like yes, it is this it's like this is where it's, it's all happening. Lift. Yeah. Yeah. And so all this cabling is coming up subterranean up from below to these, you know, like to different floors where level three has a facility and Verizon has a facility. Then because because they have to, you know, connect to each other. I mean, that's what the Internet is. There will be they'll like say, OK, you know, I don't know wh- who provides the actual wire. You know, maybe they flip for it or maybe one provides two pair and the other provides the other pair. Um, but they, you know, they agree we're going to interconnect our networks. And so this interconnection is literally four 10 gigabits Ethernet ports on one. Uh, and these are not like, you know, home routers. These are big iron. These, router, these are, yeah. Yeah, these are big monster, you know, you use a forklift to, or some burly guys to hold them while you screw them into the, the frame. And they may not even run on AC. Often they run on 48 volts DC because there's like there's a room of batteries somewhere. And so they don't bother converting the batteries 
inverting them into AC just to have them converted back to DC again. They just provide it as, and this is old telco technology, which is sort of still uh, hanging on. So, um, so it's four ports that then probably snake down through some conduit to the next floor, up or down, and they plug into the other agency's router. And that's the interconnect. And that's the problem, is that is it on one side, we've got Netflix, and whether Netflix themselves are on level three, I actually kind of think they're on Cogent, because Cogent is a rock-bottom bandwidth provider. I think they're provider. on a mix. I think they are on level three, among others. It's a mix. Yeah. And so the point is that that this this means that Traffic trying to go across that boundary from the level three network to the Verizon network has an absolute cap of 40 gigabits. It's that's all that could go. There's four of them. And yeah, exactly. Four 10 gigabit cables. The ones on the left there. (laughs) There there they are. (laughs) And you didn't, wouldn't you know it? Verizon forgot to paint those red. So (laughs) they look fine um, to me. So, uh, continuing, Mark says, Verizon has confirmed that everything between that router in their network and their subscribers is uncongested. In fact, has plenty of capacity sitting there waiting to be used. See, it's green. It's green. It's green. And in truth, that's really only true because of diffusion. You know, I mean, Verizon is also peering with, you know, Sprint and... You know, and AT and T, and like, and all these other providers, and so you know, in general, traffic is diffuse. It it kind of you know wanders around and is, and this is why this is this has traditionally worked. And what's happened, of course, it's the phenomenon that that Netflix is offering this service that that suddenly we no longer have diffusion where where the the normal daily saturation of these links never approaches 100%. Because of this Netflix phenomenon, and as Brett famously said uh, on his podcast, and yes, everybody, I heard myself use the word famously, uh, as Brett famously said, uh, the first thing his customers ask for is, can we get Netflix? You know, it's what people want. So, and the problem is, and again, I don't, we don't know the politics of this. We don't know What's happening behind the scenes? But Brett did tell us that he had asked Netflix if he could cash, and they said no. And I don't know why. Maybe he's too small. Maybe you know, uh, for DRM purposes. That's but we what do I know suspect. That- I'm sure Hollywood doesn't want multiple copies of their movies on on right on, because on th- so yeah. And, and as we discussed, the 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 problem is this. The, the the Netflix model strains the traditional diffusion mode that has allowed the internet to work. If it were possible for Verizon to only have one copy of of you know what people are watching right now, like you know uh, of the Game of Thrones things, for example, then they wouldn't. Then not every single person who wanted to watch it would have to pull redundant bandwidth across that point. They'd get it once, and then 
Verizon would just be able to redistribute it. So, I, you know, maybe there's contracts being negotiated. I, we, we, we don't know. It'd be interesting to see how this sorts out. Anyway, so Mark says uh, that Verizon confirms they have plenty of capacity throughout the rest of their network. And he said, above, I confirmed exactly the same thing for the level three network. So, in fact, we could fix this congestion in about five minutes simply by connecting up more 10 gigabit ports on those routers. Simple. Something we've been asking Verizon to do for many, many months and something other providers regularly do in similar circumstances. But Verizon has refused, says Mark. So Verizon, not Level 3 or Netflix, causes the congestion. Why is that? Maybe that now this is where it gets a little stupid, but I'll, I'll continue reading. Maybe they can't afford a new port card. He's being sarcastic. Because, <laughs> yes, because they've run out. Even though these cards are very cheap. Just a few thousand dollars for each 10 gigabit card, which could support 5,000 streams or more. If that's the case, we'll buy one for them. Maybe they can't afford the small piece of cable between our two ports. If that's the case, we'll provide it. Heck, we'll even install it. But here's the other interesting thing that I'm still reading from Mark. Mark, and then this is the end. But here's the other interesting thing also shown in the Verizon diagram. This congestion only takes place between Verizon and network providers chosen by Netflix. Now, that's not fair, actually, because the congestion only takes place because of the content provided by Netflix. So, anyway, he says, the providers that Netflix does not use do not experience the same problem. Right, because they don't have the bandwidth burden. And he says, why is that? Could it be that Verizon does not want its customers to actually use the high-speed services it sells to them? Could it be that Verizon wants to extract a pound of flesh from its, from its competitors using the monopoly it has over the only connection to its end users to raise its competitors' costs? Well, that's, you know, who knows? Uh, and, you know, finishing, I would just say I would it'd be fun to be a fly on the wall. I love something that you said in the last couple of days, Leo, I don't remember, I was watching and you were commenting about this and you just said, you know, this is happening behind closed doors. We, you know, right now there's a he said, he said battle going back and forth. Um, and meanwhile, the the user is losing because, you know, this one guy who's got 75 megabit Fios drop at home is buffering and, un and unable to get, you know, 300 kilobits in order to watch his Netflix video as he would like to, because so many people are trying to do that, and the the that pinch point is congesting. So I mean, but he it it's hard to defend the idea that you couldn't simply double the capacity by well, other ISPs four more, do. That's the point. Four more in four more interconnects, yeah. and then you're not going to have a problem. Uh, I, as, I, I, yeah, I mean I, that's the thing that's compelling to me. Uh, there are, Cablevision doesn't have this problem. There are other ISPs that do. And uh, why is it? Why is Verizon and uh, you know AT and T? Why are these? Why are the big five 
the ones having the problems. And, and as Level 3 pointed out in an earlier blog post about this topic, these are the five that have no competition. Yes, I was just going to say, you, you said this when I was listening to you, and it is absolutely the case. It's monopoly power. It's that, you know, they have the ability to say no. no this guy has his 75 megabits that he is loving, uh, which I'm envious of, uh, except that it, there's one service he can't get the way I'd he also, wants to. I'd also point out that uh, you also I, – I, if you look at the Verizon diagram, everybody else is fine. It's just Netflix. That's the red bar is Netflix. But Netflix is not more than half of the internet traffic. It's at best – 40% in prime time. That means 60% is coming from those other interconnects. They're not congested. More traffic is coming over them than the, that is coming from Netflix. It's not like Netflix is all of a sudden using up all the bandwidth. There's plenty of bandwidth. You just put in another router. Um, so it's not like... Yeah, actually, actually, if they've got, if they've got free ports... Just string some more well, wire, or, or I don't or know some if they. Ac- yeah, I don't know if they actually have free ports. But <laughs> that diagram looks like they got. Well, they got all these four ports just sitting there. We're ready to connect, but all they'd have to do is put in a few more routers. They, it, okay, so so then the idea is that 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 Verizon's position is we should be paid to carry this traffic, right. which is benefiting Netflix. And by by refusing to increase our bandwidth, we're, we're, th- their feeling is they're keeping Netflix's cus- customer, they're making Netflix's customers unhappy. And that puts pressure on Netflix to give money to Verizon right. for the privilege of this transit. They're basically holding its hostage. Yeah. Yeah. It, it looks like that, but we don't know for sure. So you're, you see, you're more uh, charitable than I am. You give both sides equal weight and say, well, you know, maybe it's more complicated than that. That doesn't strike me as being <laughs> that. You're very fair. I'm not going to be that fair. I, I think it's pretty clear who the bad guy is here. Yeah, I, I again, without, I, I just. We don't know. Just the evidence. I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm interested in, in the technology. I love the 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 picture level three painted of you know we got a router they got a router there's four connects right now that's the problem that's it, why it really you know, and it really is true level three has a significant investment in Verizon being at fault here because for all we know although Verizon hasn't given us any evidence it's level three that's unwilling to buy another router exactly all we know is there's a point there there's there due to this the 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 unusual fact that an incredible amount of bandwidth wants to come from one location this it's not diffuse what it wants to come from one location the internet just wasn't built for that well but it is diffuse that's what i'm saying is they use cogent they use level three they even have uh netflix offers its own a CDN that they could put into Verizon. They have a box they could put into Verizon's network. Brett talked about that. He didn't like that box. But, uh, you know, they do offer these solutions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So- Again, it, 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 when, it, when it goes above the bandwidth, suddenly we a whole bunch of unknowns enter. 
And I, well, I again, think this that was, what Level Three is kind of saying is, look, this is a common thing that happens all the time on the internet, and by kind of universal unwritten agreement, when there's congestion, you add some hardware. And they're making the point it ain't that expensive. There's no reason not to eliminate the congestion. Except there's this issue of symmetry. And and that's something, as I mentioned last week, I've, I've never had anyone explain to me why it's important. But for decades, I've, I know that that's an issue. Somehow, this notion of generally equal transit in both directions... And so that's something that the Netflix phenomenon breaks because the traffic is not symmetric. Oh, yeah. It's, it's but all wanting to flow in one direction. It's the same thing. All, in a all candy, I'm saying is it's the same thing in a candy store. You know, all the Hershey bars go in. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but, but, but it is that what, what Verizon's selling is this data. Access. That's, that's, in what, this case. that's what they're selling to their customers. So yeah, I, I just think <laughs> my, my my point is this is a new thing. This is a this is a a new phenomenon for the internet. The idea that uh, that forty percent. I mean, that's a huge number of like total internet traffic is one provider. That's crazy. That's completely insane. So it's breaking assumptions. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing. The strain of these assumptions, people, and maybe it's just you know large corporations taking a long time to act, you know, to to you know Verizon needs to to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah, I know. we'll see how it plays I out. I think they figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, this is the weirdest research paper. Microsoft Research published this paper, and it got picked up. And I saw, started getting tweets about it and saw, you know, people covering it. The Guardian, uh, their headline was Microsoft recommends against always using strong passwords. Or sometimes it was just Microsoft, stop using strong passwords everywhere. And people were like, what? <laughs> what? And so, you know, I, I sort of assumed actually the title of the paper is really all you need to know. If you if you really read the 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 paper's title carefully, it tells you. And I didn't put it down in my notes, but I have it right here, and I'm sure I can grab it. Uh, uh, there it is. Um, so the 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 Microsoft Research paper is titled "Password Portfolios and the Finite Effort." user, colon, sustainably managing large numbers of accounts. And, you know, I mean, this is a heavy-duty academic paper. It's, uh, you know, 15 pages, and it is steeped in calculus and asymptotes and, and curves and things. And what it reduces to is nothing that we don't know, which is the absolute worst case that is that is the the hardest for users is the joint recommendation that they never use the same password on more than one site and 
their passwords are really complex and impossible for anyone to guess, no matter how much anyone knows about them or their lives. So, you know, I mean, that's that's the collision of of advice. And of course, many things have happened. You know, I'm furiously working away on Squirrel as a solution, complete solution to this problem. Meanwhile, password managers have been created to manage this nightmare for us. So Microsoft's paper assumes no existence of aid of any kind and just sort of assumes that, okay, in today's world, uh, is it really true that all passwords are equally valuable? And so what this multiple-page academic research does is it says, no, some sites are not that important. Your bank, yes, you really want to use a strong password there. Random create a login so you can add a comment to a blog? No, that's not important. So there, the policy could be softened and you could probably get away with using your common, I just created an account so I could comment on a blog password. Again, you know, they do calculus <laughs> to show us what we already pretty much knew was not all websites have equally strong value for our having robust authentication. So on those sites, we could soften our rules. On the other hand, when we do, in fact, have really good login automation, as we do with LastPass and similar password managers, eh, might as well just use 20 random characters we're never going to be able to memorize because it's doing that for us. So anyway, that's what all that was in the news with Microsoft saying, eh, stop using hard passwords everywhere. And there's lots of calculus to back that up. It's like, yeah, okay. And just as we were talking last week, Oracle dropped an update to Java. Uh, I, I only mention it just for the, for the sake of people who are using Java. Um, it's update 65 of Java 7. And I, and I love Brian Krebs. Uh, he, he said uh, the title of his blog uh, post about this was Java update, patch it or pitch it. Uh, and so he, he said, Oracle today released a security update for its Java platform that addresses at least 20 vulnerabilities in the software. Collectively, the bugs fixed in this update earned Oracle's critical rating, meaning they could be exploited over a network without the need for a username and password. In short, if you have Java installed, it is time to patch it or pitch it. So, and of course, you know, we've long talked about this Good news is you can disable Java if you need it on your machine. You can disable it in your browser plugins. You can disable it in Java itself. You can tell no script you don't want to run. I mean, you know, more and more preemptive actions are taken requiring people to, you know, really really want to run a Java plugin. It wasn't that many years ago that they just ran all the time by themselves, and we were talking every week about disasters that this was causing for people. It is really not the case anymore. Uh, I'm really sad for the 
the horrible reputation that Java has only because we're more in a cross-platform environment today than ever. And it would be nice to have, you know, a great, strong, reasonably fast cross-platform tool. There are, I run across things all the time that are available for Java and for Windows. I mean, sorry, available for Mac and for Windows that are in Java, written in Java. That's what that's you have to have Java installed on, you know, if you want to run it anywhere, because that's where they got platform independence. And, you know, I would love to be using it because it's a powerful platform. It's all I would need to be doing like cross platform network stuff. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I just I can't because it's it's hurt itself so much over the years. Also in the news. Uh, a bunch of people picked up on this. Uh, th- this is something we talked about two years ago, known as canvas fingerprinting. Um, Gizmodo covered it uh, with an, a, a story saying, what you need to know about the sneakiest new online tracking tool. Well, okay, it's not new. Um, it is sneaky, and it also doesn't work very well. Um you know, Gizmodo said, what do the White House and YouPorn have in common? Their websites both use canvas fingerprinting, a newer, okay, maybe that's true, er, newer form of online tracking designed to make it hard to hide. ProPublica investigated the pervasive shadowing method developed as an insidious <laughs> alternative to cookies so websites can keep tab on where their visitors browse online. Okay, now, uh, and then, and this was actually a consequence of a paper that was just published. I think it was July 1st. Uh, and these guys who did the paper said by crawling the home pages of the top 100,000 sites, we found that more than 5.5% of the crawled sites include canvas fingerprinting scripts. Although the overwhelming majority, 95%, of the scripts belong to a single provider. And this is top of your, add this to your host's uh, blocking list, and that's addthis.com, A-D-D-T-H-I-S.com. So 95% of the Canvas fingerprinting is being done by this company, addthis.com. We discovered a total of 20 Canvas fingerprinting provider domains active on 5,542, that's that 5.5% of the top 100,000 sites. Okay, so what is this? Um, Canvas fingerprinting is absolutely clever. Uh, Canvas is the is the API term for a a platform independent means of graphics on uh, JavaScript graphics on browsers. And everyone who's been listening to the podcast for a long time will remember when I discovered Canvas because I wrote that really cool animation of like showed waveforms moving and the polarity switching back and forth in magnetic heads and how it basically showed how magnetic 
uh, hard disk recording worked using, you know, this animated diagram all in JavaScript, and that was all Canvas. So what, what these guys are doing is they're, they're rendering objects on this Canvas surface. That is, they're like printing text. They're doing some uh, WebGL stuff, you know, some, some 3D stuff. They're drawing circles and rectangles and like in different shadings and shadows. And, you know, basically they're, they're running through at an object level drawing onto this bitmap. Then they're extracting the, the contents of the bitmap and hashing it. So what that does is it creates a fingerprint, which is to say they're, they're finding subtle differences in the, the drawing of text and objects on the screen and the, like the, the anti-aliasing that's being done, the, the grayscaling, the, you know, the, the, the color rounding, little tiny details will change the actual pixel brightness of specific bits. And they don't care about the details. They just, they, they draw the standardized thing. Then they suck out the bits of the bitmap that result and hash it to get a fingerprint. Now, the reason this doesn't work is, despite all going to all this effort, is that it says nothing about the user. This, is not, this doesn't identify the machine like from other identical systems. And many of us are using the same laptop. Many of us are using the same Mac. You know, many of us are using like the same of, of a lot of stuff. So it's true that probably Firefox renders at that level of scrutiny differently than Chrome and that, and that Safari renders differently or maybe not if they're both now WebKit based or, or Opera renders differently. And maybe there's different subtleties of the font that is installed on my machine versus on a Mac. But my my machine will also have the same font that many other Windows machines have. Anyway, um, it turns out exactly as our intuition would say that this, after going to all this work, they get 5.73 bits of entropy, which is to say less than six less than six bits of entropy, and six bits would be 64. That is, so that is to say, looking at all of the users in the, on the internet, fingerprinting can put each one of those users in one of 60, less than 64 bins. So it doesn't fingerprint people. It fingerprints the machine. And we all, as I said, use a lot of the same machines. So, eh, I guess it's, I mean, as a, as a add-on to existing means uh, of disambiguating 
for tracking, maybe it's interesting, but it's not pernicious and insidious and impossible to scrape off your shoe. It just, you know, it's, you know, yeah, it's one more thing that provides some, some additional bits of, of, you know, machine locked identification. And we've talked about, you know, like just hashing the headers in your browser is going to like the version numbers of all the junk you've got installed is, typically is sent in the in the query headers that the browser sends for every single thing it asks for so you know there's lots more entropy there and and arguably that's a, a much better lock on a, on an individual than this so anyway this was a little overblown uh you know interesting research uh and Again, people being very clever about trying to figure out, you know, how they can track people around the Internet. But uh, I would, however, if you're interested, uh, add addthis.com to whatever blocking you have. Um, And in pursuing this, I ran across a very interesting EFF project that I hadn't seen before. They call it the Privacy Badger and so it's at www.eff.org slash, and then just all one word, Privacy Badger, B-A-D-G-E-R. And EFF writes, how is, and this is one of their projects, how is Privacy Badger different from Disconnect, Adblock Plus, Ghostery, and other blocking extensions? Privacy Badger was born out of our, the EFF's desire to be able to recommend a single extension that would automatically analyze and block any tracker or ad that violated the principle of user consent, which would function well without any settings, knowledge, or configuration by the user, which is produced by an organization that is unambiguously working for its users rather than for advertisers, and which uses algorithmic methods to decide what is and is not tracking. Although we like Disconnect, Adblock Plus, Ghostery, and similar products, in fact, Privacy Badger is based on the Adblock Plus code, none of them are exactly what we're looking for. In our testing, all of them required some custom configuration to block non-consensual tracking, several of these extensions have business models that we weren't entirely comfortable with. For example, and I'm going off script, Ghostery is a tracker. <laughs> Even though they show you who's tracking you, they do too. Um, and they make that clear in their fine print. And then EFF continues. And EFF hopes that by developing rigorous algorithmic and policy methods for detecting and preventing non-consensual tracking will produce a code base that could, in fact, be adopted by those other extensions or by mainstream browsers to give users maximal control over who does and doesn't get to know what, get to know what they do online. So, frankly, you know, we absolutely know where the EFF stands. You know, they're, if anything, they're over the top on this stuff. And, you know, if, you know, that's where you want someone like this to be. So I would say give Privacy Badger uh, a look if you're someone who likes to, to run an experiment with the, the, these kinds of add-ons. 
Um, I, I got a kick out of just a, a now we're into miscellany. Uh, a, I saw that Dell has begun accepting Bitcoin uh, for payment uh, on their site. Uh, uh, they uh, on a blog posting and they announced that in partnership with the clearinghouse code base, um, they would now be accepting payment for Dell equipment and Bitcoin. So and that's that makes them the largest uh, big name company to do so so far. And it Bitcoin does seem to be stabilizing. It's been flow. It's been kind of hovering around just sort of north of six hundred dollars and ha- hasn't been doing any of its uh, historical dramatic gyrations, which is what we would expect to see. in you know, as something matures and, and settles down, um, a number of people tweeted the news that Particle Fever is now available on iTunes for $5 to watch or on Netflix oh, if you subscribe to Netflix. Yes, Leo, and if you didn't see it, if you haven't seen it, missed it, oh, my God. Yes, good, 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 good. Please. Um, it is. It, people will remember that I, I walking out of there along with my 76-year-old neighbor, I was already framing what he said when he said, that's the best $6 I ever spent in my life. <laughs> That's neat. That's exactly what I was going to say. It, it was just, great. it was an astonishingly great movie. Jenny was traveling. She was out of town in San Francisco and I texted her. I said, you must, must, must. Oh, and I'd seen, I noted that it was playing in, uh, up in the city as we Northern Californians call San Francisco. Uh, she went, broke from her yoga retreat and went to see it. And absolutely loved it too. It's just, it's a a narrative by the physicists themselves talking about first beam that, you know, when after 15 years of digging tunnels and, you know, just incredible, this is the biggest machine mankind has ever built. And it's just, it's just thrilling on so many levels. And they take you through like they're stumbling and things that exploded. Like when the press was had all their cameras rolling. And it's like, oops. And then like they had to decide when after they recovered from that, if they wanted to kind of do a sneaky one at night. <laughs> just so they wouldn't embarrass themselves. Oh, it's just, it's so good. So I see it's Netflix, on iTunes as well. I suspect yes. it's on everywhere you can buy movies at this point, $5. So. Good. Rent, rent it for five. Buy it for fifteen on iTunes, which is probably a good idea. Own yeah, it. It's it. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. And uh, and speaking of Netflix, and I thought you'd like this also, Leo. This was just this was something that that launched prematurely. It was it's a com, and you should bring it up if you can. A Uh It was an. It came up and collapsed under the load and. For about two weeks, the guy had a funny picture of some like a weird Photoshop hybrid, hybridized shark and goat or something. It was very <laughs> odd. Uh, but it it basically it got hit by you know by TechCrunch and Gizmodo and everybody and just broke brought the site down. What this is is it's a it's a search engine sort of or a this recommendation engine. Yes. It takes the rotten, the very highly regarded Rotten Tomatoes site and adds three sliders and 27 categories. So you can, you can the, the, the tomato meter, you can set between zero and 100. So what is the minimum ranking on Rotten Tomatoes that you want to consider? Uh, 
the minimum number of review of reviews that a film has received, the years of production when or, or release, like and you can set a minimum and maximum. So you can you know, like only new stuff, only oldies and so forth. And then twenty-seven categories, which you can selectively disable, and then it runs through the entire Netflix inventory and and against the Rotten Tomatoes recommendation to find things for you. A- anyway, I just it it there's some things I immediately you know flagged as oh oh great I didn't because for me and I've heard you mention this Leo whenever I run to Netflix they don't have what I want you know I I for whatever reason I mean there's all these movies there but you know the one I want uh, no and so. This sort of solves the problem of wanting to watch something good that Netflix does have. And the way and this a com will uh, help will empower people to find them. So and this is because wanted- both Netflix and Rotten Tomatoes have an open API, a public API that anybody mm-hmm. can use. It's just uh, this is why APIs are good. Yes. Everybody benefits. Um, this is a total aside, but uh, just worth mentioning again for people because we haven't talked about it for for quite a while. Um, I saw a note in my mailbag when I was going through the Q and A a couple of weeks ago from, um, and this is not about Spinrite. This is Michelle Roberts writing about the GRC's DNS benchmark, and she said, "Thank you very much for the DNS benchmark application." which, of course, is freeware that I labored over for quite a, many, many months years ago. She says, my ISP, although pretty fast, a cable provider, she says, was still choppy at times. However, since using your application and switching to the top two DNS servers, my Internet experience has been like a dream. Uh. I assume I will need to, quote, benchmark, unquote, she says, on occasion, say, quarterly to stay in good shape. Maybe not, since OpenDNS seems to be the top player in my area. Thanks again for a, near, for a very nice application. So anyway, I just wanted to remind people that that's there at GRC. It has been downloaded nearly one and a half million times. And it gets right now uh, about 1,600 downloads a day, every single day. And if you just put DNS benchmark into Google, I own that. Um, you know, I'm the DNS benchmark because this just, you know, did the job. And, and it, it does, the, the nice reminder is that, that DNS is the first thing our browsers do. When, when and especially now with sites that are pulling stuff from every direction i mean if it's it's scripting and assets are coming from 20 different other domains then when that first page comes in your browser is madly making dns queries to get the ip addresses of all those other servers so that it can set up tcp connections and get the stuff that the page needs in order to be complete and so if you if your dns is flaky Everything seems wrong. It just, I mean, the, it is the first thing that it has to be working. Uh, that's what's why I created the benchmark was to bring some awareness to this. So anyway, I just wanted to remind people that it is there. And I thought I would also answer a question from a Ben Parrott, who, or Parrott, uh, who's in Sheffield, England. Uh, and he says he's a bit confused if I can help. He says, Hi. 
I'm interested in purchasing Spinrite after listening to Security Now for the last four months, as I've obviously become accustomed to its use, but never needed it until now. Within the last two weeks, my MacBook Pro one terabyte hard drive has developed errors, which is causing it to crash more regularly. <laughs> okay, now <laughs> this is where you know your 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 the world is trying to tell you take action. You know if it's if the hard drive is developing errors, which is causing your your MacBook Pro to quote crash more regularly. You're probably close to the point where it's gonna, it's not gonna be regular any longer. Um, so he says, I have thought, or he says, I have bought a new one TB drive to sustain my solid state urge. So it sounds like he probably went to an SSD, but wanted to repair the old drive and bring it back to use. Yeah, would it be possible to connect? He says, I'm sorry, to correct my old hard drive with Spinrite. If I connected it to a Windows machine that had Spinrite installed, would this method be difficult to accomplish in terms of file systems? Thanks in advance. Keep up the great show. And the answer is no, not difficult. Um, if, you, if you have access to a Windows machine and obviously you've taken the drive out to put in an SSD, you've got the drive. So uh, you may need an, an adapter depending on what kind of interface your motherboard has. Uh, IDE, SATA, and, uh, and it might be a, a small connector on the on the one terabyte drive. So you'll need to get the you know the wires connected. But then running Spinrite is trivial. You just run it. And you know I've I, I was telling someone the other day that, that how much pressure I've always been under to add this or that feature to Spinrite. But until version seven, which will be a, a complete ground up rewrite. Um, I've held to you. All Spinrite does is fix your drive. Yes, it could do other things, but that's not what Spinrite does. I I know that it, it could make fabulous pasta, but it's not a pasta maker. It just fixes your drive. So you run it. It's easy to do, and it fixes your drive. Please don't use Spinrite to create pasta or any other baked goods. <laughs> I could not create pasta, Steve. Let's be honest. I don't think there's any way well, you could write spin right. No. Even in assembly language, the most if powerful. I had an, if, <laughs> if I had an, if, if the pasta machine had an ah, API. Yes, there's the key. As you have noted, we want open APIs. Everything is possible and, with an open API. <laughs> and, and, and possible. <laughs> I have no reason to think that there aren't pasta makers somewhere with open APIs. Actually, I have plenty of reason to think that. Steve, we're going to yeah. take a break. Jonathan Zdarsky says he's listening. Oh, cool. In fact, if you want him to call in, uh, he can. But I, I think what we, we don't probably need to do that. But maybe, Jonathan, what we'll do is contact you for a conversation at a later date. Uh, listen to what Steve has to say. He's the uh, researcher who uh, uh, called uh, Apple to task for some of the very odd things going on in iOS. And we will talk about that in just a moment. First, a word from our sponsor, Pro. XPN. We know you all are very privacy and security minded. That's why you listen to this show. And of course, if you listen, you know that there are some risky things you can do, like using open Wi-Fi access points. Uh, well, frankly, if you're using the Internet anywhere, uh, the Internet service provider could see what you're doing. 
anybody in an open access point can see what you're doing. I mean, there are there are risky behaviors that can be protected with OpenVPN. That's a virtual private network that encrypts your data from your desktop or laptop or even your mobile device on its way to the outside world. Now, at some point, it has to end at an OpenVPN server and from there on continue uh, across the open Internet. But at least that first mile or 10 miles or 1,000 miles is protected. And that's what ProXPN does. ProXPN hosts OpenVPN servers for you so that you can be protected from snoops at your Internet service provider or open access points near you. It can also, and this is kind of cool, change where you emerge onto that public Internet. Sure, you can emerge at any one of their servers, and they have servers in Dallas and Seattle, Los Angeles and New York, but also London, Amsterdam, and Singapore. So now you've got privacy, you've got security, and you can eliminate geographic restrictions. So you can appear to be coming from any of those cities. That's pretty cool. Complete online privacy using a 512-bit encryption tunnel using OpenVPN. On devices that don't support OpenVPN, they also support PPTP. You could protect yourself against your ISP snooping against six strikes laws, internet filtering, blocked website, geographic restrictions. It's easy to use. ProXPN does have software for Windows and Mac offering advanced controls so you can select ports, connect at startup, even select which programs should be shut down should your anonymous connection ever be interrupted. I wonder what what program that might be that you would want to shut down. Hmm. Uh, notice they have oh, mobile apps now, too, which allow you to get uh, OpenVPN support on Android. Uh, they, I mean, this is really good stuff. Um, the uh, the ProXPN uh, app for Android now in the Google Play Store comes with your ProXPN account. And we've got some special pricing for you. If you visit ProXPN.com slash Twit. ProXPN is very affordable, $74.95 for an entire year. But when you use our offer code SN20, you'll get 20% off. And not just the first month, the first year, but forever for the lifetime of your account. That makes it less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan. 5 bucks a month for this kind of security. If you surf uh, somewhere where people are paying attention to what you're doing, check it out. ProXPN.com slash twit. The offer code SN20. And, of course, you can pay through Visa, PayPal, and Bitcoin. ProXPN.com slash twit. All right, Steve, let's uh, let's talk about iOS security. You did a great two podcasts, as I remember, right? On Actually, it was three. Three on the original I, yeah, uh, it just, white it paper. Just, from there was so much to talk about from the white paper, yes. And at the time, and, you were very impressed with what Apple had done. Yes, and that's absolutely the case. Um, and I'm, I'm also impressed with what Jonathan has done. Um, this is a... A great piece of of reverse engineering work, um, and and I and I guess you know as we were saying at the top of the show, the I don't think there's any question that having th- that that with Jonathan having re- asked some questions and and planted some 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 really useful doubts and. Uh, and issues out there that Apple needs to respond with more than their boilerplate PR. Um, at the same time, the the devil is always in the details, and and Jonathan's paper 
which he originally wrote, um, I think, in late 2013, uh, late last year, was where it was originally published. And he, and he noted that it had been around for a while, but no one had really paid attention to it until, you know, he gave a presentation with a PowerPoint slides. And, and so that's true and that's a problem because everybody wants sound bites and and the the operation of these systems just does not distill to sound bites which doesn't prevent headlines from doing that because that's what headlines are and of course headlines are designed to get readers and so the the popular press has just gone berserk over this uh, you know, GigaOM wrote their headline was security researcher suggests 600 million iOS devices have Apple created backdoors for data. ThreatPost.com, uh, their title was researcher identifies hidden data acquisition services in iOS. Forensic ex- uh, Mac rumors, forensic expert questions covert backdoor services included in iOS by Apple. Um, Ars Technica added a little twist. They said undocumented or they said backdoor can be abused by government agents and ex-lovers to gain persistent access. Uh, the register.co.uk, never to be outdone for being inflammatory, said hidden hidden network packet sniffer in millions of iPhones, iPads, uh, plus host of spying tools. And so, you know, it's things like hidden data acquisition service, covert backdoor. Um, you know, those, those are intention-laden terms that are absolutely unwarranted. And, you know, that's my problem is that, that, that th- these, are, these are facilities which are not documented because Apple is a closed system. So no one ever said Apple had to document these. So saying that they're undocumented makes them seem like they're secret and and no one is supposed to know about them. Well, you know, these amazing engineers and reverse engineers and hackers and jailbreakers have done an incredible job of reverse engineering this technology and figuring out how this works. So... So, you know, my overall take is that this kind of ruthless analysis is always useful and important for security. You know, all we had going from Apple's white paper was, you know, sort of like from the clean room, here's all of the amazing stuff that we've built into this. But we've had that for years, and yet... The jailbreakers have always found a way in. I noted that in Jonathan's paper, he commented that iOS 7 has not been jailbroken. So, you know, this is this is a consequence of the successive refinement that we talked about when we were talking about, you know, the, the, the iOS security where, you know, Apple was looking at the mistakes they were making and trying to develop more of a, a defense in depth posture where where they were creating more layers so that, you know, even if something got through, it would have a harder time turning that, that vulnerability into an exploit and so on. 
So, so, but, but the point is that the work that Jonathan is doing is crucial. I mean, we need someone to do this. This is like somebody, you know, auditing the open source of open source code. It does. It's nice that it's open, but until somebody actually attacks it and looks at it, its openness is completely irrelevant until, and, until someone goes at it. Now, on a closed platform like, like, like Apple's iOS platforms, it takes somebody prying under the hood in order to figure out what's going on. So, um, so this kind of attack is absolutely important. And, and really, it's, it's what we need in order to achieve trust. It's one thing, I mean, it's, it's a good starting point is for Apple to say, you know, with their white coats on, look at all of the cool technology we've got. But what really matters is how it works, like what it does when, you know, the, the bits start th- flowing through the processor, which is what Jonathan has done. And my, my very favorite anecdote about this was Steve Ballmer back in the summer before Windows XP's release, where he was prancing around the stage and loudly proclaiming that Windows XP was the most secure operating system Microsoft had ever produced. And I said at the time, um, I think this was pre-podcast, although I feel like I was saying it somewhere, but maybe this was during the podcast, that you, you can't proclaim security. That's not something that, especially the person who created something, cannot proclaim security. That's something that only history can judge. And, and so, for example, it's history that was able is now judging earlier versions of iOS and, and judging that they were not as secure as Apple was hoping they would be. People were finding wedges, you know, ways in. Um, and so there have been a, a, a succession of, of iOS versions over time. But again, it's so the, the you know, the, the fundamental position is we absolutely need people like Jonathan to, to focus on this and do their worst, do everything that they can. At the same time, I really don't think that, any, that anything Jonathan said should take anyone by surprise. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll parse a lot of this here in the next half hour. But, but while I hope Apple will be induced to explain some of their decisions, and it may very well be that, that they, can, they can further tighten things up. I, I, the, in your discussion during MacBreak Weekly about this, um, Renee said a couple times, I think it was Renee, that, you know, maybe it was the case that Apple, you know, rushed this a little bit. Or, for example, and Renee recognized, who also read the paper, didn't just rely on the slides, um, as I have, that um, it was you know, maybe for adding features that the, um, that the enterprise needed, and maybe Apple went too far. Um, so, so um, I don't think that 
Jonathan got anything wrong. I think, I, and I, in the paper, he was very careful with his facts. The slides have the problem that they're not the paper. And they have the problem that they were meant to accompany his presentation. Yeah, Renee mentioned that he ended up going to the white paper to really understand what it was all about. Yeah, so, and, and you have Jonathan's to. Paper. You have yeah. to. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and that's the point is essentially the slides take the, the facts out of context. And if they're taken out of context, then they are inflammatory. I mean, you know, they, it, you, they, they, they look much more scary. Whereas, for example, John, Jonathan, and, and we'll, we'll talk about pairing in a second, because pairing is the keys to the kingdom. Pairing is everything. And Jonathan makes that very clear in his paper early on. And, and the problem is that because you can't keep restating that in like as a caveat to everything you then say, it's easy to forget that. So, for example, you know, the, 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 uh, the fact that the PCAP daemon uh, is running doesn't matter at all. I mean, it, it absolutely is superfluous. There's all kinds of stuff running in there, none of which is accessible unless you have a, pair, a trusted pairing. That's crucial. And Apple understands this. Um, now, I completely agree uh, with some of Jonathan's recommendations and some of Renee's that, that what would be valuable because pairing is so important would be that, that users get more control of that, that it be made more visible, that, that, it be, that, that we're, we're helped to understand or maybe able, for example, to easily flush all of the outstanding pairing that exists. I would love to be able to do that because over time you just sort of acquire these things, these pairing relationships. And as Jonathan makes very clear, that absolutely creates security vulnerabilities. The reason these, this, all of this exists is this tension that fundamentally exists between usability and security. Toward the end of, of his paper, Jonathan recommends a number of things, one of which is, you know, uh, tightening things down more securely with passwords, using passwords more um, in order, because, because a passcode or a password is, is, is a fundamentally powerful tool. It's, it's something that exists in the user's mind, which if managed properly by the system is, is very potent as a protection mechanism. The problem is it's also very burdensome. And, and I'm sure that Apple is, is struggling with, with trying to offer the features that the system does while keeping it secure. I don't, you know, I don't see anything here that looks like deliberate surveillance in nothing that Jonathan has said. What, what is, I mean, and this is why I, 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 I push back at the idea of these things being covert. Well, you know, they're apples. 
they're they're not I mean they're covert because it's a closed system. That's what Apple is selling. That's what users are buying is a system which they purchase and with minimal interaction and requiring them to do very little it works and it doesn't get in their way. And so, you know, for example, during Mac break, you guys brought up the perfect example from from Jonathan's presentation, this notion that that once the device has been powered up or rebooted and unlocked, then and then relocked, all of this is going on behind the scenes. Well, if we think about it, of course, that's the case because we want to be able to receive SMS messages and we want to be able to receive email. And, you know, the user actually has a device which is operating with its screen turned off. Basically, this is a UI lock. But, the, but, the, but big chunks of the operating system are decrypted. They, they mean, the, the system has come alive. You know, it's in use. And so, you know, we could say, for example, the same thing, and we have, about hard, you know, full drive uh, encryption. It's only safe when you're not using it. When, it, when, when the drive is not in use and not decrypted, that's the only time that it's providing you with any protection. It's against its non-use case, not when it's in use because it has to be decrypted in order to be in use. So, so these, the, essentially these phones are, is a, you know, is a functioning radio connected computer while we're using it. I mean, and and while it's in our pocket with the screen turned off. So yeah, really, it's a fundamental misunderstanding, not Apple's fault, about what the screen lock does. It's a UI lock, not an yes. encryption or a phone lock. It's just locking down the UI. Yeah. Now, Jonathan, in being careful, I, I you know, again, did Apple justice, I thought. Um, uh, he, he uh, on slide number 10, he said, in, encryption in iOS 7 not changed much. Um, and, and he says, once the device is first unlocked after reboot, most of the data protected, most of the data protection encrypted data can be accessed until the device is shut down. So he makes the point system lock or screen lock not equal to encrypted, which is important for, as you say, Leo, for users to understand. Um, well, I mean, for maybe our listeners to understand. You know, and I mean, this is really, you know, people with absolutely no understanding of security. None of these things that we talk about are happily using the phone and their iOS devices. And it's pretty much protecting them. I mean, it, and this is why I'm this is why I was so pleased with the the, the clear intent and the technology which is now in the in the iPhone five and I and and in use in iOS seven is there's a, the incredible resources Apple has brought to bear to to like to to push the that that tension to the point where users are still not being harassed yet they really are very well protected. Then Jonathan's next bullet point on slide 10 says, 
the undocumented sir now okay undocumented services which you know yes they are because apple didn't document them because everyone has reverse engineered them but that doesn't make them spooky or secret or anything just you know it's a closed system that these guys have pried the 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 lid off of so the undocumented services running on every iOS device help make this possible right then he says your device is almost always at risk of spilling all in bold data since it's almost always authenticated even while locked and my immediate response the picture that flashed in my head was yes and while we're walking upright we're almost always at risk of falling, <laughs> falling down <laughs> and and you know That's you know fair. and sh- sure enough <laughs> as babies and old people that be that's a problem. Yeah. Babies aren't good at walking. Yeah. Neither are old people. But pretty much we're okay. Everybody else so, is all right. Yeah. <laughs> so so you know to, to, I, I love the work Jonathan did. But you know words like spilling all data. Spilling implies you know like it's all going to come tumbling out if the user shakes it wrong. Which you know and he knows that's far from the truth because he explains. In his paper, and, and, and if not on these slides, probably in his presentation, how, you know, the nature of, the, the, of what's necessary to make this happen. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But, but so, again, you know, your, so your device is almost always at risk of spilling all data. No. Uh, and in fact, it's incredibly well protected against ever spilling any data that's the truth incredibly well protected against ever spilling any data it takes there there's a a chain of things necessary that that have to precede the access to any data to from the outside of the phone and the first thing you need physical access to the phone a physical USB connection, yeah. not radio. You can't do it through RF of any kind. You have to have a USB wire connection. Now, the, again, because of trade-offs um, and also bad implementation, I love the point. The, Jonathan made uh, a point of the fact that, the, for example, users could plug into a power, you know, a third-party power adapter and an iOS 7 now prompts you. You, you, there's no longer a, it's not possible to do a prompt-free pairing. Pairing requires user interaction. Um, But you should never have to pair with a power plug. That's ridiculous. (laughs) And that's the point, is it it could be an evil power plug you know, with with a microprocessor in there, not just a transformer, and it's established a a a security critical pairing relationship, and so so again, a- Apple very cleverly 
And this was the point that I made during those three podcasts about, you know, about, about iOS security. They did everything they could to hide the amazing crypto, which is going on under the covers. So, uh, but, the, but there's a problem with them hiding it because then people don't appreciate it. They don't know that when they plug into a power adapter that it sh they should not trust that device. It's saying, you know, trust this device? No, you know, don't. You shouldn't need to to get juice. Um, and in fact, that could be, and again, that's the trade-off. Um, so uh, Jonathan made some great points. Uh, also, the, it's absolutely the case that the iOS attack surface should always be made as minimal as possible and and Jonathan found services for which he could find no obvious mating software which he looked for to his credit so so the question is and this is what this is really what if, if Apple generates a technical response and we should understand too they're not under any obligation to I mean, this, you know, this their system was hacked and someone has said, I found stuff I don't understand. And unfortunately, scary words have been hung on these things that we don't understand. Well, that doesn't make them malicious or nefarious or anything. It just means we don't know why they're there. Um, within a system which in every other way has shown it's trying to protect its users. So um, he, he raises the point that it looks like some of these things, like the packet capture, could be made unavailable unless the system is in developer mode. It's hard to argue against that. I, I would agree. Um, it's hard, you know, unless... Maybe something not, that's not in developer mode uses it. You know, the, and, and again, this notion of like packet capture, that sounds like a big deal. But, you know, there's packets running all, all over the place everywhere. And so, you know, anything that is in a long chain of, of stack of, of security and protocol at, at, at various levels is able to, you know, capture whatever is passing by. So we shouldn't read more into that than is there. And again, it's none of this, nothing is available without a this first, this pairing relationship, uh, which is the only thing that allows the, or that will convince the phone to trust something else. But I do agree, Apple needs to probably, it would be great if Apple would respond with more than their canned PR blurb. Um, so, um, um, Jonathan says, uh, he, he, in his paper, he explained that pairing is the linchpin. Um, uh, and because this is key, I'm just going to, just going to read directly from the end of page four and into page five, where he says, pairing, the keys to do everything. In order to understand how an attacker could penetrate an iPhone. Now, okay, so as I'm reading this, the, the, 
everyone listening needs to understand this has been written with an with an adversarial posture. So, um, so for example, at the end of this first paragraph, he says, there are a few frightening things to know about the pairing mechanism. Well, okay. <laughs> so anyway, but, but so, and I also wrote what, how Apple would describe the same thing in a second. So, so Jonathan says, in order to understand how an attacker could penetrate Penetrate, there's a, again, okay, I'm not going to stop on every one of these words. You you understand what I'm saying. Could penetrate an iPhone from the owner's desktop computer. It's important to understand how pairing works. A pairing is a trusted relationship with another device where the client device is granted privileged, trusted access. In order to have the level of control to download personal data, install applications, or perform other such tasks on an iOS device. And I'll just stop here and note, that's what iTunes does. That, you know, that's, we, we essentially have this weird thing where we have a, an incredibly sophisticated pocket computer that has grown out from a music player. Yet this, this it still sort of has this music player user experience, you know, where you used to connect your iPod to your computer and iTunes would come up and you'd manage your music. Well, now you're managing way more than that. And Apple has basically kept the same paradigm of operation so that this phone, awkward as it often is, is tethered to a computer. And we, you know, we are seeing Apple gradually breaking that that strange bond and for example updates can now happen without having to be you know retethered to iTunes and so forth but that's sort of where this came from but but many of these things that you know sound spooky are just it's what iTunes does i mean it's what you want if you're not a bad guy so continuing jonathan says this is done through a very simple protocol where the, where the desktop and the phone create and exchange a set of keys and certificates. These keys are later used to authenticate and establish an encrypted SSL channel to communicate with the device. Okay, that's all good. Without the correct keys, the attempted SSL handshake fails, preventing the client from obtaining privileged access. A copy of the keys and certificates are stored in a single file, both on the desktop machine and on the paired mobile device. The pairing file is never deleted from the device, except when the user performs a restore or uses Apple's erase all content and settings feature. In other words, every desktop that a phone has been plugged into, especially prior to iOS 7, is given and he describes it as a skeleton key to the phone. That's true, but that sounds scary. This pairing record allows either the desktop or any client who has copied the file to connect to the subject's mobile device and perform a number of privileged tasks that can access personal data, like iTunes does, install software, 
like iTunes does, analyze network content, and so on. This one pairing file identifies someone as the owner of the phone, and with this file gives anyone trust and access as the device's owner. Then he says, there are a few frightening things to know about the pairing mechanism in iOS. And this is where I say, this is great to shed light on. These are, we, we should know, we security-focused people should know and understand this. Apple has deliberately kept my sister and mother from needing to know any of this, yet at the same time, provided them with very good security. Anyway, Jonathan continues, pairing happens automatically without any user interaction up until iOS 7. So he, he noted that that was something Apple clearly understood was too easy. And so they made it explicit, more, you know, re requiring a deliberate, a, a deliberate um, acknowledgement from the user starting in iOS 7. You could argue it took them too long, but it's there now. And only takes a few seconds. Pairing can be performed by anyone on the other end of the USB cable. The mobile device must either have no passcode or be unlocked. So again, it, it, it's either got to be unlocked or have no passcode. So anyone with any security on their phone can't pair. Again, you know, a Apple trying to trying to put up every barrier they can so that users don't even know there are barriers. If the user has require passcode set to anything other than immediate, then it is also possible to pair with the device after it is turned off until the lock timer expires. So if the user has a device unlocked to play music, and connect it to an alarm clock or a charger running malicious code, whatever it's connected to can establish a pairing record that can later on be used to gain access to the device at any point in time until the device is restored or wiped. Now, I don't know whether that can happen, again, whether this caveat up until iOS 7 and the requirement of an explicit acknowledgement still applies. I hope it does. Um, but that's the other, th the other problem with, with the slide presentation and even with the paper is it, it's not possible for, jo for Jonathan to keep reminding everybody only if the, if the device has been paired and the user has acknowledged blah, 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 blah. So that stuff gets left out. And then things seem vastly scarier. Like, again, like data could just be spilling out if you hold the phone upside down. Um, so, but, you know, but, but these overriding caveats are always there. So, while the, uh, finishing this on Jonathan's part, while the pairing process itself must, play, must take place over USB, at any time after that, the phone can be accessed over either USB or Wi-Fi, regardless of whether or not Wi-Fi sync is turned on. This means that an attacker only needs a couple of an attacker only needs a couple of seconds to 
Now, he says pair, but we really mean repair. That is, you know, um, oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I've, I've read that wrong. Uh, needs, needs a couple of seconds to pair with a device, at, which is true, assuming that they can with all of the caveats that protect from inadvertent pairing and can later on access the device to download personal data or wreak other havoc if they can if they can reach the phone across a network additionally an attacker can easily find the target device on a wi-fi network by scanning for port tcp 62078 and attempting to authenticate with his pairing record as the pair validation process is very quick Sweeping a LAN's address space for the correct iOS device generally only takes a short amount of time. So, again, I love that Jonathan is, like, poking in every corner and has done all this experimentation to show us the, the, the exact boundary of, of, of the security perimeter that Apple has established. But then, but then I wrote, you know, how Apple... If they were describing this, how Apple would describe the same thing, they would say, pairing is an important and security-sensitive system, which we have made as strong as possible while attempting to strike a balance between users' absolute intolerance of anything getting in their way while still working to protect them as much as possible. To that end, it is impossible to ever pair wirelessly. Physical USB cable connection must always be present. Since iOS version 7, any pairing also requires that the device be unlocked and the user must acknowledge and accept the pairing request from the physically attached device. So, so you can see, you know, there are two very different ways to state essentially the same thing. Um, again, I'm glad to have the... The, you know, the aggressive, you know, is this really what we want? And out of this comes some good questions like with pairing uh, for really security conscious people, not all of us, but for those of us who care, who are listening to this podcast, wouldn't you like to be able to examine all of the, the, the records in this pairing file in your iOS devices? And delete the ones. And revoke them, yeah. That, yeah, revoke them. Just, you know, it's like, wait a minute. I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to have, I don't want it to have my private keys, which essentially it, it has keys that would enable it in the future to repair. So, and in fact, I'm wondering about this whole notion of repairing because it's not clear to me why that has to be a non UI event you know, ever from like from now on, like trust once and forever. No. How about just, it's, it's just a little tiny time, window. All you have to do is enter, enter your passcode and you're in. And well, you just type, yeah, type, tr yeah, tap on. Yes. I trust this. I still trust this device. So it's not clear. I mean, it seems to me that making these as persistent as they are, which Jonathan wonderfully highlights, maybe is going to form. Maybe they should may or. Well, Apple you can't. And by the way, you can with a tool that Apple offers for download, turn that on. They just don't have it on by default, right? The uh, the, the, the system configuration yeah. configurator, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, I think I pretty much covered all of this. Uh, uh, 
Oh, and I did. Uh, uh, Jonathan just said, because of the way Wi-Fi works on these devices, an attacker can take advantage of the device. Oh, okay. A device's known wireless networks to, as he phrased it, force a phone to join their network. Okay, well, yeah. Uh, when within range. But he does note that, app, that Apple recognizes by SSID, like Linksys or ATT Wi-Fi, not by MAC address. And that's another you know, important thing to note. Uh, and he, he, he posits it may even be possible for a government agency with privileged access to a cellular network, to a cellular carrier's network to connect to the device over cellular, although I cannot verify this due to the carrier's firewalls. So he can't, he can't see this port that he mentions, 62078, um, is a port where where that master uh, lockdown D service runs, and he, he describes it as a service that all Linux, uh, low-level Linux guys will uh, will know about uh, the INET D daemon, which is then so it's sort of like the this the main listening service that then is able to spawn other services as required. If you don't want to have a web server running all the time, you can have the you know like <laughs> I don't know who doesn't, but you you could have the INET D daemon. Uh, start it for you on the fly when TCP traffic, you know, web traffic comes in and wants to, to talk to something on port 80, for example. Um, so finally, he says, essentially, that tiny little pairing record is the key to downloading, installing, and even manipulating data and applications on the target device. Again, yes, that's iTunes. That is why I have advised law enforcement agencies to begin seizing desktop machines so that they can grab a copy of this pairing record in order to unlock the phone. A number of forensic imaging products, including some I've written, and even open source tools are capable of acquiring data from a locked mobile device so long as the desktop's pairing record has been recovered. The pairing record also contains an escrow key bag so that it can unlock data that is protected by data protection encryption. This is good news for the good cops who do crazy things like get warrants. It's very bad for anyone who's targeted by spy agencies or malicious hackers looking to snoop on their data. But again, absolutely to do that, you, you must... Have, there must have been a physical connection with the machine. So, again, the takeaway valuable that Jonathan provides is that our the machines we routinely pair with are sources of vulnerability for the for access to our phones. So, you know, that's definitely something that we want to keep in mind. And. Um, I really think I've covered. I'm scrolling through the rest of the slides that I had here in my notes, but although we sort of did some of this out of sequence, I think I've pretty much covered it. So um, uh, the summary slide says, Apple is dishing out a lot of data behind our backs. And I think now people have a better, a better way of understanding that statement on the summary slide. Uh, you know, much like the the data spilling, bursting forth from the phone. Well, no. Uh, he says, 
it's or Jonathan's position is it's a violation of the customer's trust and privacy to bypass backup encryption. Uh, he says there's no valid excuse to leak personal data or allow packet sniffing without the user's knowledge and permission. And again, this is really twisting the nature of, of the, the the nature of the security Apple's provided and the way they provided it. Could they make it way more difficult? Yes, but then it would affect every single user of the system, um, and and so. So really, the way to the way to think of this, I think, is if we reduce the vulnerability to what Jonathan himself, to his credit, lays out as as the linchpin, which is pairing, that and that and requires a physical connection, and we we take away from this that after that's been that that in that being done, key persistent access to the device in the future is granted that's really good to know does that represent a violation of the customer's trust and privacy no um that's how, that's the compromise apple made to otherwise have the system utterly locked down yet users never even know it just you know Emails flowing and texts coming in, and they're busy, you know, swiping left and right to decide whether they like this the way this guy looks or not. And I mean, they're having a great time. Meanwhile, Apple is 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 done. I think everything they can to to protect people from themselves, and there there is no indication that Apple does have anything you could allege even as a secret backdoor or other access. The, it's true you could exploit that aspect, the pairing, the, na- the nature of long-term uh, post-pairing trust. You could exploit that to get access to, to people's devices. But uh, it's not clear... Uh, unless you, uh, I guess I would say I'd love to have a setting which expired those pairing records or allowed me to audit, the, well, actually expired them for normal people. And also for those of us who wanted to drill down deeper, allowed us to audit and revoke them, uh, you know, as we see necessary for those of us who want more security. Um you know, and and just so you get a sense for this, Jonathan finishes saying, much of this data simply should never come off the phone, even during a backup. Apple has added many conveniences for enterprises that make tasty attack points for gov and criminals. Uh, although he says, overall, the otherwise great security of iOS has been compromised by Apple by design. And I would take issue with that. I would say Apple has has created a as burden-free, secure system as is possible today with the, with the small exception that maybe they could raise the bar and, and break this pairing, give users, like re- re- require per pairing um, acknowledgement even on future repairings, which Jonathan alleges uh, is not there now. So overall, great work. 
Uh, I, you know, I understand uh, the adversarial posture that is here. Um, and I think we now understand, you know, that it's a matter of trade-offs. I guess Apple's point of view would be, look, if you really care this much, get the Apple configurator. It's free. It's for uh, enterprise. Because obviously enterprise cares a lot about this. Uh, so they do make a tool available and uh, configure it and secure yourself. It's also yeah, good fact, for people to understand that unless you power the machine, power the thing off, uh, stuff's not encrypted. But again, well, and, but when, and so the but, issue would then be it's not working. It's not working. If if the file system is not entirely yeah, right. encrypted, it has it to be powered down. Do I understand. Anything. It's the same thing yeah. with TrueCrypt or anything else. Once you log right. in, everything's unencrypted, uh, exactly. and that's and there's an attack for law enforcement and others there too. Uh, but they have to get physical access to the machine. I guess you well, know. And remember, if you've and, been and arrested, remember, they can do it. Yes, and and remember too that that the phone is only as secure as your passcode. That is, we know that there, we know that Apple can brute force crack phones. That right. there's a long it takes waiting list. While to do to, it. And, and, yes. And Zajarski talks about this, by the way. In this, uh, yes. Uh, and in fact, you know, Apple, to their credit, they added PBKDF, you know, to slow that down. They, they've made the phone as crack proof as they can. That was why we spent three podcasts talking about how impressed I was by this. So, you know, they can, if they're given a phone, they can apply their tools. Takes a while. They can get in. So still, users are protected by having a really strong passcode, ultimately. Yeah. And by, if they really care, as exactly, and I'm glad you brought that up again, turn it off. Not just blank the screen, power it down. If, you know, and, and then, you know, if you want your phone not in radio contact and to have flushed all those, even those working decryption keys for the file system. Uh, yeah, I think this is good. I mean, I and you have the expertise to look at this and 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 uh, parse it, and that's uh, something I lacked. And so I'm glad to hear uh, your analysis of this. Now, and Rene, we should mention to our listeners that Renee said he was going to post a link to uh, an article he wrote to uh, about the PC con or, or the the configurator tool. I'm yeah. going to go track that down because I want that. I want that <clears throat> granularity of control. Yeah, it's on uh, imore.com. Let me Great. see if I can uh, find it just by searching imore for configurator. Uh, well, there's some older uh, articles. I I'm sure you could find it. Um, or you probably just Google, um, you know, iOS configurator, and I and it's called a, it's called the Apple configurator. Ah. <clears throat> and you do need a Mac for it. Uh, it's uh, Mac in the Mac Store free. Uh, I bet you our audience could figure it out, but it'd be nice to have a roadmap for uh, others. I'm going to get it. Yeah. Yeah, play with it. Maybe we can talk about that next time. Yeah. <clears throat> you want to do Q&A next week? Absolutely. We got them, pile them up, so we'll right. we'll handle them. <laughs> yeah, we'll do if, news and Q&A. Uh, if you have a question for Steve, grc.com slash feedback. That's the feedback form. That's the only way to do it. Don't email him. You won't see it. Uh, but while you're there, check out Spinrite, world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and all the free stuff Steve offers at grc.com in a lot of different areas. I mean, it's a really a very rich site, getting richer all the time. And it's free and easy to use, grc.com. He also has 16 kilobit versions of the uh, audio of this show for the bandwidth impaired. He has uh, transcripts written by a human, actual human being a day or so after the show. We have... 
uh, 64K MP3s as well as high-def video, standard-def video of the show at our site, twit.tv slash SN, or subscribe using Stitcher or the Twit apps or, you know, uh, iTunes and all of that. Just don't, uh, you know, don't pair your phone to your iTunes and then you'll be sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> you don't need to do that anymore. There's really no occasion that you need to do that. Um, used to be to activate an iPhone, you had to hook it up to a machine. You don't even have to do that anymore. So Apple's definitely yeah, although it com- well, that, that, that's true because it'll now back up to the cloud. Right. So as long as you as long as it has Wi-Fi, it'll do a cloud right. back. You don't even need you don't need to pair it in order to do in order right. to back it up. Exactly. Yeah. Or to get podcasts yep. for that matter. Uh, we do security now every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's 2000 UTC at twit.tv. Do just tune in live and watch if you can. If not, on-demand audio and video available, as I told you. Any time of any of our shows. We'll be back here next uh, Tuesday. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo.